Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. Um, If you have a Bible, let's open it to Mark chapter 1, where we have been working through this gospel and where we will be for the next several months. We're midway through the first chapter. We're going to look at a few accounts of Jesus' encounter with demons and sickness. And so we're going to be in verse 21 through 34 today. If you don't have a Bible, I'd really encourage you to use the Bible that's in front of the chair, in front of you in the little rack. And if you're not very familiar with looking at a Bible, uh, Mark is the second gospel. It's the second book of the New Testament. And in the Bibles in the racks in front of you, you can find that on page 588. And I'd love for you to follow along with me as we read through the story and think about uh, what it means to us and what it is telling us about God and His truth. So uh, here's what I think I'm going to do. is I'm going to read these verses, and then I'll pray, and then we'll make some comment on them. And before we begin, I want to mention that we're receiving communion today, as is our custom as a congregation on the first Sunday of the month. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, you don't have to be a member of this church, although we would encourage you to join either this church if you're a Christian or another local church where you believe that the gospel is being preached faithfully and the people are trying to live together for the glory of God. I think it's healthy to do that. But if you are a believer in Jesus, and you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to come around this table with us this morning where we pause on the first Sunday of every month in particular to remember what Jesus has done on the cross in his death and his resurrection. And we celebrate that as they have been doing for two millennia now since the beginning uh, church there in in, uh, Acts and Corinthians. We have been celebrating this by... Uh, remembering his broken body on a cross through bread and his spilled blood for us through juice. And so we welcome you to do that with us if you are a Christian. Now, though, we're going to turn our attention to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to look at this issue of authority, which as Americans we have a sort of love-hate relationship with. We love it because we appreciate it and we realize it's necessary, but come on. We're, we're children of the revolution. I've, been, uh, I've downloaded that miniseries, John Adams, and have been watching that and have been loving it, and this give me liberty or give me death mentality that we, that we all sort of born and bred as Americans, this individual rights and kind of a suspicion of authority. And we're going to look today at Jesus' authority and how that's good for us and uh, how we should revel in that. So let me read Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 34. And before I read and before I pray, let me give you my three points. Now, here's what happened. You guys know if you've been around for a while, sometimes I kid about alliterated sermon points. And I only kid because I love. Um, But sometimes I think that alliterated sermon points, and I kid about them because I think they can be a little forced and canned and kind of corny. And so I was working through, not all the time, for those of you that love them, but um, I was working through just kind of what this was saying to us and talking to Wayne and Robert. And at the end of the week, I came up with kind of the three points that I think Jesus' authority teaches us. And they all started with a C. And I went back to read over them. And I, well, oh, <laughs> well, I'll just go with it because I didn't want to force the change. And so um, I, I realize I'm being a little hypocritical by doing that. But so here's, here's the three points that I want us to get hold of before. And then we're going to work back through them. One is that Jesus' authority is comprehensive. 
Jesus' authority is comprehensive. Jesus' authority confronts. His authority confronts. And finally, Jesus' authority commands. His authority commands. And so let me read Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 34, and then pray. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. <clears throat> Father, as we come now to your word, I do pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity and light so that you can teach us wondrous things out of your law. I pray for my friends in this room who are already followers of Jesus, that we would have our affections stirred and our hearts humbled to the utter, supreme, sovereign, and always good authority of Jesus. And I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, that you, Lord, would do a miracle far beyond an exorcism of a demon, that you would resurrect them to life and cause them to be made alive so that they can trust in Jesus and turn away from sin. Lord, would you do these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of the lost. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get, let's get a picture here before we move into looking at how Jesus' authority is comprehensive and confrontational and commanding. The first is, let's just kind of get a picture of the scene. I mean, this is really fast-moving, but, I mean, striking. Jesus enters into a synagogue, which is a kind of assembly hall. It's a teaching hall. It wouldn't like, be like the temple in Jerusalem, which was, there was only one of those, which is where they would do the sacrifice and, and, and some of the, the, the more yearly type of festivals. But the synagogue was kind of like a community center where the Jews would come, and it was okay for somebody. It seems maybe strange to us for Jesus to sort of walk in there and all of a sudden him to teach, but that would have been very regular. They didn't have a sort of one main or two or three pastors, preachers like we do in our context. A person who was literate and known to be well-read in the scriptures would often get up and be asked to teach. And so Jesus is teaching, 
And these people are noticing something different about his teaching. He's teaching with authority. I don't think, we don't know what the content of what he's teaching here. And I don't think he's necessarily teaching anything particularly new. He's probably, not probably, he's definitely picking up uh, books of the Old Testament and working through them. But what I think is what's so different about Jesus' authority here that was so striking to them was not necessarily the content, but the, the person and the authority with it, which he delivered it. In fact, we see evidences of this later on in the other Gospels where Jesus will say, unlike the scribes who would give a sort of commentary on the Old Testament, Jesus would say, I say to you this. And so he's not sort of teaching about or offering commentary. He's now speaking as a singular authority on the text. And the people take note of that. And this demon uh, gets sort of rattled, and Jesus just immediately commands this demon to go. And then very quickly, he moves on, and he then goes to his disciples' house, the, disciple, the house of one of his disciples that he just called, Simon, who's also Peter. Remember, he had just called them to follow him, and he, he raises Peter's or Simon's mother-in-law from her sickness, and then he moves on very quickly. And then, think about this now, everybody in the town that was sick is waiting at his door, waiting to be healed, and Jesus there in that home healed all who were sick with various diseases. I think there's three things, as I mentioned at the beginning, that we can learn from this scene. And then I want to look at authority, and then I want to look at how authority kind of looks, works its way out in our life. The first is, is that Jesus' authority is comprehensive. I want you to see that. There's three little scenes here that give us a picture of how comprehensive Jesus' authority is. The first thing that it's comprehensive over is it's comprehensive over what we believe. It's Jesus is the authority over all truth. Just as we read last week, he calls these disciples to follow him, but he commands all of us to repent and believe the gospel, which then will be, be uh, then displayed in the rest of his life and the rest of the gospels in which we have the benefit of knowing with the rest of the New Testament. But Jesus isn't just coming on the scene as another competing idea, but he is commanding these men to follow him, and he's commanding us today even to repent and believe. So Jesus has authority over all that we believe. Jesus' authority is also comprehensive because he has authority over spiritual forces of wickedness and demons. I mean, think about this. The demons clearly know who Jesus is and seem almost surprised by his arrival. Like Jesus comes into the synagogue probably opens up a scroll of one of the Old Testament books and begins to teach. And this demon, who seemed to be going about his business in the synagogue, in the religious meeting place, seems to be surprised. Like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing here? And then, like a prisoner of war who is wondering about his fate, just humbles himself and says, Jesus, wait a minute, have you come to destroy us? Jesus very clearly is shown as having authority over Spiritual forces of wickedness and demons. And Jesus, just with one word, commands this demon to go. Jesus' authority is also comprehensive because we see his power over sickness. After he kicks this demon out, he goes on to Simon or Peter's um, house where his mother-in-law was sick. And he just very gently goes and raises her up, and the fever leaves her. And then we see he goes on, and the whole city comes to visit him, and he heals all who are sick and demon-oppressed. 
And so we see Jesus' authority over truth and what we should believe. We see his authority over demons and spiritual forces of wickedness. And friends, by the way, some of us may think, well, you know, does this type of stuff really happen today? I mean, do we see demon possession? Does evil still work like that in the world? And I would say yes. We may not see much of it in America because maybe the enemy has come up with more deceptive ways to allure us as Americans. I don't know. I mean, that's, a, that's up for speculation. But let's not be arrogant 21st century uh, Westerners who think that this is some sort of primitive tale and sort of think that what we're battling here is just sort of a less than optimal, a sort of dis, like a faraway notion of sin. Friends, there is a real enemy. There's a real Satan. And the scriptures tell us in 1 Peter 5 that he prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. His tactics may have changed over centuries and his, his, his strategies may have changed with different cultures and maybe in our culture we don't see demon possession or maybe we've, maybe we've, therapeutic, maybe we've made the language therapeutic and maybe, maybe there's more of it going on than we realize. I don't know. I'm not here to speculate on that. But I'm here to tell you that just as there is a demon that is clearly at work here and in the time of Jesus, friends, they are clearly at work in our day as well. And we are ignorantly arrogant if we act like we're sort of above that. No, maybe the strategies have changed. Maybe the setting is different, but evil is alive and well. And still, friends, here's the encouraging news. Jesus has total and utter authority over it. And he has total and utter authority over sickness. So one thing before we move on to look at how Jesus' authority confronts when Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and then he sees all of these people that are healed, he heals all of these people as they come to his door. Does this mean that we should expect Jesus in our day to heal all sickness? I think the answer to that is no. The purpose of Jesus' healing in the gospel, especially here in this account, is to show and display his power over what we believe, over spiritual forces of wickedness, and even over the physical world. Jesus' mission in his first coming is not to heal everybody, but to display his power, to give, to give a, a sort of picture of his kingship. And one of the ways that he's doing that, that he's getting the world's attention, that he's authenticating his divine status as God himself is, in this instance, healing people. Now, do we believe that God still can and does heal people today? Certainly, friends. But I think that sometimes well-meaning Christians read an account like this and they overreach a little bit. And, and, and they think that because Jesus heals these people, that that means automatically that um, if we're right with God, he will always heal us. And I think this starts out as an earnest desire not to limit God. And then it kind of moves into an overreach and expects too much of our future reality and eternity with Jesus, trying to pull too much of the promises of God for their future into the present. And then at its worst, we see it become sort of a really gross, man-centered sort of prosperity, name it and claim it, poor, terrible understanding of good theology where it kind of exalts faith above God's sovereign purposes. But friends, do we believe that God can and still does heal? Of course. Do we believe that the Bible calls us to pray for one another when we're sick. Of course, James 5 says, there's any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and pray. And that the prayer of faith can and will save people. But does God, is God bound 
by the measure of our faith, if we hit the meter high enough and the ball goes high enough to kind of hit the bell, that all of a sudden he's now bound to respond to our faith, making our faith sort of outranking God's sovereign will? No, friends. We're caught, remember, like we talked about last time, in this time, in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, where he has established his, his kingdom here on this earth as an outpost through the local church. And now he's in this process of his, between his first coming and his second coming, when he will come again and make everything right and everything will be healed and cured and he will finally and fully consummate the glory of his kingdom. But we're in this in-between time where we have this privilege to go to God, but he, he sometimes doesn't heal like he does in the gospels in this life. But that should nevertheless cause us to back away from God and go to him with all of our requests. So we see that Jesus' authority is a comprehensive over what we believe, over spiritual forces of wickedness, over sickness. And secondly, Jesus' authority confronts. He doesn't come to debate or compete in a, in a sort of arena of ideas. Jesus comes to wage war against evil. This is what 1 John chapter 3, verse, just verse 8, listen to this. It says, it says that the reason, I don't think it can be any clearer than this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus has come not to sort of kind of enter into all of the philosophies of the day or to saunter up next to somebody that's in sin or demon-possessed or sick and just sort of offer them some, some coping mechanisms. Jesus comes to confront and destroy the works of the devil. He also comes to, con to confront unbelief. This is what it says later on in the Gospel of John in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So he comes to confront sickness and spiritual forces of wickedness. He comes to confront unbelief. And he comes, he comes even to confront my sin. And our sin, not because he's some ruthless judge, but because he loves us and he knows that we have forfeited true joy for a counterfeit joy. And he comes to command us to repent and believe so that we can have true joy in him. Jesus is a confrontational sovereign king who is waging war, not advice in this fallen world. Thirdly, Jesus' authority commands. He commands people to follow him. He commands you and I to lay down our lives. He commands us to repent and believe. And he commands the demon. Isn't this interesting? He commands the demon not to speak. Have you ever thought about why? Like why Jesus doesn't, why he even does command the demon not to speak? In fact, that's a, a bit of a theme in the early part of Mark's gospel. He com commands the demons not to speak after he kicks them out of their host. And in another instance, he commands a man who's healed not to tell what Jesus has done. I mean, if I had, <laughs> I mean, what would we do if we sort of had the power to exercise a demon who was mouthing off to us? And we, we exercised that demon. I mean, come on. I, we would be like Under Armour commercial, you know? It would be... We must protect this house. I mean, we would, we'd be chest bumping each other. Yeah, get a punk. What you got, demon? We'd bring your friend. You know, that's what we would do. 
But do, do you notice how, especially if we were trying to establish the kingdom of, I mean, we just want glory. We, we have a sort of default of, let's do this thing. But Jesus goes the other way with it. He commands the demon who is now a witness of his glory, who probably would be a pretty good advocate for the power and authority of Jesus because he just got his tail whooped. He commands the demon not to speak. Why? Like, why would he do that? I think there's, there's something to this. I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think that Jesus knew that the fervor that would come at this stage of his ministry and how people would sort of jump ahead to his messiahship would probably be unhealthy because they were still sort of thinking of it as kind of being a political messiahship of, of just the Jews and their relationship with their captors, the Roman Empire. And so he knew he had more teaching to do, and so he didn't want his mission to be misunderstood. But I think there's even something deeper than that, is that Jesus doesn't come merely as a sovereign, overpowering God, although clearly he is. But he comes also as a humble servant. And his desire is not to convert anybody just through brute force and power, but through humility and ultimately suffering. And so Jesus isn't wanting to just, just bowl over our hearts, bowl over the people. Do you see what humility and grace that is? I mean, when you're the creator of the universe and you could do that, to restrain yourself, to know that you're not really going for hearts that just sort of bow down in fear and amazement and astonishment, but also who understand the humility and the suffering and the love that's in that, that ultimately he will lay down his life on the cross. The fact that Jesus permits the demons not to speak, I think, is just an utter testimony of the character of God and his humility. So Jesus... And his authority is comprehensive, he's confrontational, and he commands demons not to speak, and he commands us to speak and decide who we will follow. But how does this authority actually work itself out in our lives? And here's what I want to spend the rest of my time with, just a few minutes before we receive communion. I think as most of you would agree with me, okay, Brad, I get you, Jesus' power is comprehensive, there's not a square inch of this universe that he's not sovereign over, that he doesn't have power over. He's not in some sort of dualistic match with evil. And, you know, sometimes Jesus wins if his people have enough faith, and sometimes the devil wins if his people don't have enough faith. And we're kind of in this grudge match where we barely win at the end. Friends, that's not what the Bible pictures as of God's sovereign authority. So we realize that, okay, Brad, I get that Jesus is, is coming to, to be to confront evil and sin in our lives, and, and I get that he has the power to command, but how, how does that actually, this 30,000-foot sort of doctrine of Jesus' authority, how does it actually land in our lives? Because I think we can sort of acknowledge it, but then I think it becomes another thing to actually weave it into the fabric of our daily lives. Well, there's a couple ways that I think Jesus' authority clearly, biblically, works itself out in our lives. One is, is it by his spirit that dwells in us, Bible says in Romans 8 that when we become Christians, that his spirit dwells in us. Galatians 4 says that we've been adopted by God, and that there's this spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. And so we now are not left to our own devices to follow God, but we have this 
The presence of God dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And certainly he guides his people into all truth. And, and now we're convicted of sin. And, and now we want to follow him in our lives. And clearly he gives us his word. He gives us his Bible. He gives us the canon of the scriptures to read. And we should read them. And friends, I was just thinking about this the other day. I, I was just thinking about some of the difficult truths that, that we work through in the Bible. And I was thinking about one of the reasons why we go through books of the Bible is it guards us as leaders from skipping stuff that's hard to talk about. Right? And I thought about how important it is for us as people to complete, continually bend and, and regularly bend our hearts and humble ourselves to this, to this book. Because, because I just thought about it. If, if the only time you're really engaging the Bible is when you get together on a Sunday morning with other Christians and then you hear a hard truth presented or you read a hard truth and, and you hear a preacher talk about that hard truth, it will be much, much, much more difficult for you to, to actually humble yourself to that hard truth than if you're humbling yourself to that truth sort of on your own throughout the week in community groups with other Christians. And so he gives us his word and his spirit dwells in us. But, but I think one of the ways that's so undervalued in our individualistic culture is that he also gives us the church. And let's think about this for a second, that Jesus gives us the church. Because think about this. See, he gives us his spirit and he gives us his word. But both of those things can be often very individualistic pursuits. Okay, I'm a Christian, and I believe in Jesus, and he now, I am his, and he is mine, and his spirit dwells in me, and he's given me his Bible, but still, the plumb line, sort of the, the line that keeps everything straight can still be a very individual pursuit because we can, we can often sort of lose our bearings, and it becomes a very, a very sort of self-centered thing for us to just follow Christ because of what we think he's saying to us and what we think the Bible is saying to us. And so to remedy that, to actually work his authority into our lives, he's given us each other, and he's given us each other in the presence and the form of the local church. In fact, Jesus says of authority, of his authority, that he has given it to the local church. Look at, listen to this. Listen to Matthew chapter 16. No need to flip there. Let me, we're going to have it up on the screen. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter, the same Peter whose mother-in-law he healed here at this early scene. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this scripture. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist and Elijah and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And listen to this in verse 17. He says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, you, you sometimes it, this is totally off the point I wanted to make it, but I'm, what I want to make here. But let me just say, I've had this picture a while back when I was reading this. You know, sometimes we think about evil as advancing against God, but it says that the gates of hell will not prevail. So the, the kingdom of God is actually advancing against evil. I mean, how do you attack with a gate? You know, you got like a part of a fence and ah like I'm going to get you with this gate you know but but really the picture is sort of the opposite way is that the church is advancing in this dark age against the gates of hell who can't withstand the onslaught of heaven who God by his sovereign grace is picking another one and another one and another one for his glory and his kingdom that's another that's just a little side statement there you clearly weren't as excited about that picture as I was 
But I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen to this now, verse 19. Again, thinking about this, this issue of authority in the local church. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now let's stop here, because I know you've heard this verse preached completely wrongly, probably, if you watched any televangelist or any prosperity gospel, or you've spent any time flipping through the channels and landed on TBN. Right, a lot of times, sometimes very false prosperity, faith healer type preachers will take that verse and they will preach it as kind of like, now we have this confessional power to sort of bind demons or this or that, friends. That's not what this verse is saying. Jesus is giving Peter, as a representative of the church, now the church, the authority, that he is saying that you are so important in my plan to redeem the world that I am channeling my gospel through you and whatever you preach the gospel to will be effective and will open up the door to salvation for these people, ultimately to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you don't is bound. And so now God is saying, I'm fastening myself to the means of the church. And church, what a great responsibility is that we have, that whatever you preach to, I will move sovereignly through that, and I will open up that door for the hearts of the people that I'm saving. But whatever you don't do stays bound. And so God is fastening himself to the means of the church and saying, you are responsible for the salvation, for the opening of heaven to people or the closing of heaven to people. It's not some strange confessional thing where we can bind and loose sort of demons behind rocks. In fact, he says the same thing just a couple chapters over in Matthew 18 when he's talking about confronting sin in one another's life. Listen to this in Matthew 18. Again, this idea of the authority of us in each other's lives here in this church and how that how that is, how Jesus' authority lands practically in our lives. He says in Matthew 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've sinned and, or you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so there's this dispute between Christians and Jesus gives us a clear way to solve these disputes. Verse 17, he says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This group of people who have, who have submitted themselves to one another authority. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, put him out of the church. Truly I say to you, listen to this. Again, here's this issue of authority. And this verse is, again, often misinterpreted. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Friends, this, this again is often misquoted as if two Christians will just sort of pray about anything that God's sort of obligated to answer their prayer. No, that truth is in the context of Christians in a local church who are putting an unrepentant brother or sister out of their church because they are refusing to submit and repent of their sin and submit to the authority of Jesus in that church. And he's saying, you have the authority as a group of people doing life together as a local church to put this person out. And whenever two of you or this local church come together, you have my authority to do this very weighty thing to publicize to the world who is and who is not following Christ. Friends, that is 
huge. Now, let's just confess something here. Come on, man. I don't even, I mean, I'm not even, let's not even get with notes and stuff. Just think about this for a second. We don't think of what we do here as a local church in those terms. It's all about me, man. What do you got? I mean, I think about it that way. Come on, and I'm a pastor of this gig. I think about it. I confess. I have a deluded, warped, man-centered view of the gathering of the saints, and I need the Bible to beat against the rocks of my heart like the waves of the ocean to pound and smooth my dark edges. God says that his authority, Jesus' comprehensive, confronting, commanding authority is mitigated through us in one another's lives. And he says that what we do here together is so important that we have the power of the keys of the kingdom to certify to an onlooking world who is truly following Christ and who is not. Now, friends, don't misunderstand. I am not saying that we have final authority to say who's a Christian or who's not a Christian. I'm saying that that power only rests with God. But I'm saying that God takes his church and the authority he gives us in one another's lives so seriously that he's saying if a brother is saying they're a Christian and they're not living like it or they're not wanting to kind of join this thing, then you have the authority to say to an onlooking world, we can no longer validate whether or not this person is truly in the faith. Friends, that is humbling. That is really, really humbling. And I confess that by default, I look at the church as kind of what I can get out of it. What I can do. Come on, let's just do this thing. Come on. What do we got here? We got some good programs. How's the preaching? Do I like the music? Is there kids ministry, this or that? And all that kind of stuff. And we make all these decisions. And friends, those are sometimes very legitimate processes and things to think about. But Jesus is laying a foundation for how his authority actually works itself out in our lives. Friends, that's why what we do together as a local church is so important. Because how does this 30,000 foot level doctrine of truth that Jesus is supreme and authoritative work itself out in my life? You can say, well, I just know it because I'm a Christian. But friends, do you see how arrogant it is to think that we have no blind spots? That we aren't still affected by sin? How we don't need each other to confront one another's sin and to say to one another, come on, brother, are you really in the faith? Are you, are you bowing and humbling your heart together to this group of people that God has given authority to to help one another live for the glory of God. Jesus' authority works itself out in our lives practically through, of course, his word and his spirit that dwells in us, but through even our relationships in this room. He gives us gifts to do that. Romans 12, he says that some of us will have wisdom, some of us will be uh, good leaders, some of us will have gifts of mercy so that together we can, we can exercise this unbelievable authority of Jesus in each other's lives. He gives the church leaders. He gives the church pastors and elders to lead, and their authority doesn't come because they're good speakers or because, they, because they're charismatic. Their, their authority comes because the word of God that they preach and teach. He tells Timothy in 1st and 2nd Timothy to preach the word, command these things, exhort the people, rebuke them in all truth. And so he gives us a collective authority in each other's 
lives. Okay, and I end with this. Why is understanding this so important? Why is this humility that it takes to understand how Jesus' authority works itself out in our lives as individuals together as a group of people called the local church? Because I think we need to all confess that we're, most of us are Western Americans that have grown up in a democracy, and I'm thankful for that. But I'm thankful for democracy, not because um, I, I have a, a high degree of confidence in, in human political ability or the American experiment. I'm thankful for democracy because of the fall. Because I actually have a very low view of man's ability to be a king over himself. And so democracy, short of God's kingship, which he's calling for, is probably the best human system that we can have. But here's the deal is democracy sort of bends us towards protecting our own individual rights when really what we deep down inside need is a, we need a king. We don't need to protect our own individual rights. We need a king. We need a king who's comprehensively in control of every area of our lives. We need a king who will confront us with our sin. We need a king who will keep us from wrecking our lives into some counterfeit pleasure. And we need a king who commands us into pure and true joy. We need Jesus. And why this is so important is because Jesus, the king, has established his outpost here on earth the church, to be a display for all onlooking people who are still ruled by themselves. They're still ruled by these unclean spirits. They're still ruled by the prince of the power of darkness. And Jesus has established the church to be this total countercultural, beautiful display of his authority. He's established this church and how this church then interacts with each other and how they love each other and how they command each other to follow Jesus and how they confront each other and how they get into areas of each other's lives and humility and graciousness then becomes a picture to an onlooking world that needs a king. They don't need a despot or a ruler or a dictator or a president. We need to give a picture of the true king who's sovereign and good and powerful and authoritative but gentle enough to even lift the, the one out of the bed so that she can serve him again or the one who's troubled with some demoniac. We as a church, are to display the good and righteous and sovereign and powerful and gentle and beautiful kingship of Jesus because that's what the world needs to see. That's why it's so important here, friends. That's why what we're doing here is so much bigger than life tips or good sermon points or songs that we like to sing or classes for our children, but how we work through grievance, how we work through offense, how we forgive one another, how we have difficult conversations, how we serve one another, how we don't just come and consume, but we give ourselves up for one another becomes, friends, part of God's evangelism plan 
again so they have the onlooking world who doesn't even know it, but they need a king. They see a group of people who are bowing their hearts to the only one who is a true and good and worthy king. And friends, do you see how beautiful it is? Do you see how sometimes Christians will make the mistake of, of sort of separating out church life from evangelism, that we got to do this discipleship thing, and then we got to kind of go out and do this evangelism thing. Friends, do you see how those two things coalesce? That as we live counterculturally for the true and only rightful King Jesus and how we exercise his authority that he's given us, it becomes an aroma. It becomes a fragrance to an onlooking world who desperately needs a king. And Jesus says it in his word through Paul this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says that he always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the aroma of Christ everywhere. To those whom God is saving, it's an aroma of death. To those whom God is saving, it's an aroma of life. But friends, he's called us to bow our hearts to this king and to humble ourselves to one another so that the world can get a picture of what they truly need a good and sovereign king who has all and utter authority. How are you doing with Jesus' authority? Are you not yet a believer? And this is the first time you've ever heard things like this? Oh, here's the good news, friends. <laughs> the king right now, I believe, is opening up your ears to respond to his kingship. Repent and believe. He's saying the same things to you that he said to those first four disciples. Repent and believe. Turn and trust from your own kingship. How's that worked out for you so far? Turn from trusting in yourself and turn and trust in me is what the king is saying to you right now. You don't need to fill out a card. You don't need to go through a catechism. You don't need to go through a membership class. You need to look away from your own kingship and look to the only king that can truly reign. You need to believe in him and his kingship and what he did on a cross to bear God's punishment for your sin and turn it into his grace and to give you life. Turn away from yourself, that's called repentance, and turn in faith towards Jesus, that's called believing the gospel. How about you're a Christian? How are you doing with Jesus' authority? Has it kind of been an individual thing for you? Or um, is the Bible calling you to give your life up to this group of people that are trying to humble themselves to the authority of the true king as well so that through your life combined with other subjects of the kingdom, your life collectively can become so much brighter to display the authority of the true king. Now let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Ushers, if you'd come down to uh, be prepared to serve us in just a moment, I'll pray and then I'll, I'll lead us through communion. Father, as we now come to your table, I pray that you'd help us. I pray for my friends in this room who have not yet bowed to King Jesus. They maybe came into this room with a very warped and... Um, worldly view of what church is all about, just maybe here to receive some truth or nugget for themselves. God, would you show them that's not, this is really about it all, but we're just a group of pardoned rebels who are now citizens of the kingdom. 
and subjects of the only true king who has any authority to rule and reign. And we're just trying to exercise humbly this great and beautiful privilege that he's given us together to live together. Lord, would, would you just show that brother or sister, that person in this room right now who's not yet following Jesus, how beautiful the reign of the king is. Lord, would you give them a heart to believe and ears to hear so they will turn away from their own false kingship and turn and trust in Jesus' true authority as king in their lives. Because as Jeremy read at the beginning of the service, there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of lords and king of kings. And Lord, I pray that they would make that willing rather than unwilling. Lord, right now, would you give them a heart to believe and trust Jesus as king? And Lord, for the rest of us in this room who are already followers of the King, God, would you, would you humble us? Would you, would you orient our hearts towards the means that you've given to work out your authority, which is us together collectively as a local church? And Lord, I think for some of us, that means that we actually need to sort of scoot up to the table and say, hey, I'm part of this thing called Crosspoint. And if that means that maybe there's some other church that believes the Bible and preaches the scriptures and loves Jesus, it would be better for them than God, I pray that they would go there and that they would kind of push all their chips to the middle of the table and say, I'm in it. I'm in this thing with these other pardoned rebels who are just as messed up as I am. But I'm going to kind of give my heart to this thing called the church because that's where the king reigns most clearly to an onlooking world. Lord, would you do that for people that just seem to be on the edge or have been hurt, or are hesitant, or whatever it is, and for, for innumerable reasons, they're just sort of keeping the church at arm's length. God, finally, for the Christian who is, they're just sort of all in, and maybe they're frustrated because other people don't seem to be working as hard as they are. Lord, for those brothers and sisters here, would you just breathe life into them? Would you connect in their hearts their service to your people with something more than just duty? Or would you connect it to this glorious display of the kingship of Jesus, which is what this city needs, which is what this world needs? And would you refresh them with a fresh blow of your breath? And God, would you lift their eyes to see what's at stake here in their service to your people? And Lord, as we come now to receive your, your supper, Lord, would you stir our affections for the King. In Jesus' name, amen.